Today's episode is brought to you by Death Wish, Inc. For 20 years, Death Wish has been the go-to label for emerging punk and hardcore. That continues today with their recent releases from scene staples and promising newcomers such as Modern Life is War, Greek Death, Chastity, Converge, Frail Body, and more. Get 10% off all Death Wish music and merch in their store using the link deathwishinc.com slash the first ever, which automatically applies the discount and filters the site for only items included. Again, that is 10% off all Death Wish releases and merch when you visit deathwishinc.com slash the first ever. Have you checked out those new Greek death songs? Jesus, that band is good. Start there. Welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. If this is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. This is episode 77, and my guest is Stefan Babcock of the band Pup. They got a new record coming out called The Unraveling Of. It'll be out April 1st on Rise Records. You can pre-order that now. And uh, this was a great chat. I love uh, I love talking to Stefan. Um, we'd met in the past. We've been around each other uh, very few times. So this is definitely the longest conversation we ever had. And it was uh, it was quite lovely. He's a very very sweet Canadian boy. Um, I will say that we had a little bit of technical difficulty with uh, with a little bit of um, you know that sound um, that little like buzz electronic sound that would happen maybe if like you had your cell phone next to a uh, microphone or next to an amp or something like that. Anyway, um, no cell phones were around us and, uh, we couldn't figure out what was causing it. So you might notice that a little bit in the back. We, uh, we did our best to at least kind of cut that down, but, um, you may notice it. You may not. I don't know. Oh, I'd like to add, there's a bonus episode. You can head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon and hear a bonus episode with Stefan where he answers questions that were submitted by subscribers. It is available now and uh, if that interests you, or maybe you just want to support the show, hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon, where you can subscribe for as little as $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to the Discord channel. You'll get extra radio hour bonus episodes. Uh, and then I'm, I'm posting all sorts of content on there. I'm posting about new records I'm getting in. Uh, I'm doing deep dives on bands that I think are awesome. All sorts of stuff. And if you subscribe for like seven or ten bucks, you can uh, submit questions to upcoming guests, find out who's coming on, all that sorts of stuff. Uh, and also, let's shout out my friends over at Anchorfish Printing. Hey, are you thinking about starting up a band, label, or distro? Or maybe you already have one? Well, you're going to need some merch. Anchorfish Printing has been taking care of bands for over 15 years. I can say when Touche started, Michael over at uh, Anchorfish was our guy for hoodies, patches, back patches, all sorts of stuff uh, for several years. And uh, he was always there to take care of us. He was always on time, always very great quality. 
Um, so I can't recommend them enough. Uh, you could check out Anchorfish Printing on Instagram at anchorfish underscore printing. And uh, if you place an order, mention the first ever podcast and receive 10% off that order. Hit them up for shirts, hats, stickers, anything that you could put ink on, he can make happen. And lastly, before we get to the interview, if uh, you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this, that would help out a lot. Leaving a positive rating and review helps oh so much. And uh, if you want to reach out to me directly, uh, hit me up at the first ever mailbag at gmail.com. And uh, maybe I'll, you know, read your email on one of the shows. I might do like a mailbag episode. So feel free to hit me up there if you want to say anything, if you want to comment on an episode, if you have any questions, I'm happy to respond. All right, here's my conversation with Stefan Babcock. Stefan, awesome. Good to see you. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Are you in Toronto right now? Yeah. Yeah, there's like uh, three feet of snow right now. It's nuts. Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, is it? It's, that's, I mean, I'm assuming that's not uncommon for, for February, though, right? Um, it's been a weird winter for Toronto because Toronto is usually like uh, kind of slushy and gross. And, and uh, it, it actually rains a fair bit in the winter. But um, I spent half my time like in northern Ontario where it's like constantly snowing for nine months of the year. <laughs> How far north? Not that far. Um, like four hours north of Toronto, but uh, it gets uh, it gets cold and snowy real fast. Okay. Okay. Got it. And are you from Toronto originally? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Is the whole band like born raised Toronto? Yep. Yep. Pretty much. Um, the other three guys have been friends since high school and Zach and Nestor actually have been friends since they were like infants. They grew up um, down the street from each other. Whoa. Do you feel like having a, your band be all like actually from Toronto is a rarity in the same way, like having a band all be from LA or all be from New York. Cause obviously Toronto is like the hip place of everyone in Canada probably wants to move to. So do you think that's kind of like a rarer occurrence? Uh, maybe I think <laughs> in Canada, like if you're from within four or five hours of Toronto, people will just say they're from Toronto. Uh. Which is cool. It's kind of horseshit, but like, uh, we're, <laughs> we're actually, uh, actually from Toronto, not to gatekeep living in Toronto or anything, but I think it's just easier for most people, especially when they're talking to Americans to be like, we're from Toronto rather than being like, we're from Sudbury, Ontario. Like, you know, sure. I mean, yeah. you, you probably do. You probably play, play there, but most people were. Yeah. Or like London or Hamilton or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let me ask you this. When you were, when you were a kid, like what was the first thing that you connected with musically that felt like it was yours? Well, I'll give you, <laughs> I'll give you a brutally honest answer and then sure. maybe I'll give you a slightly cooler. Answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it all. Um, the first music I remember listening to that was not like my parents playing it was, um, a Mary Kate and Ashley tape. <laughs> That's that might be my new favorite answer. <laughs> I think I was like probably like four years old. Uh -huh. And um, I had a, a Walkman and I had this, I guess my parents or my sister, I'm not sure, gave me this Mary Kate and Ashley tape. And I hadn't really thought about it for, I don't know, tw 25 years or 
I hadn't thought about it in a long time. And um, it just kind of popped into my head like uh, maybe a year and a half ago when we were writing Morbid Stuff, um, our last record. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I ended up writing a whole song about my favorite song on that album. Yeah. Um, they had a song called The Ghost Song. And it was like about ghosts being in their house and how it was creepy. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just like... <laughs> a flood of memories just came back and it's just kind of, it's weird how those things kind of like stick with you from when you're barely cognizant of, you know, the world around you. Was it, was the songs like a part of one of their like TV specials or movies or something like that? Or was it a separate thing? I think it was a separate thing. They were like, you know, they, they're probably the same age as me or like a, maybe a couple years older. So they were probably like five years old on the tape yeah so very much like a kid's thing like they had a song about broccoli and like you know stuff like that but um <laughs> i was really into it <laughs> okay so then what's your what's your elevated cool answer <laughs> <laughs> um i think the first time like i really like i realized like music was good <laughs> okay uh i was probably in sixth or seventh grade um uh, and I heard, uh, forgot about Dre. It was like huge when I was in sixth grade. It just, sure. it seemed to like kind of come out of nowhere though for me, because like up until then it had been like stuff my parents were listening to, um, or the Backstreet Boys and Spice Girls. Uh, and I just didn't have any sort of other awareness of anything else out there. Yeah. And then going from like, you know, you know, going from like my mom's like, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat record to yeah. to uh <laughs> to forgot about Dre was pretty like it was a major mental shift. Yeah, I mean <laughs> I couldn't imagine a bigger one. That's insane. Uh I had Chris Farron on and we talked about that about Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. <laughs> really? like, yeah, we were talking about musicals and uh religious ones at that. Um that's the one that stood out to me for, uh, that I remember from because um, I went to like a Christian elementary school. So I, yeah. I definitely remember that musical. Did you did you uh, did you go to like a Christian school or something like that? Or no, I didn't. But um, my dad was like my dad was into kind of like you know Alice Cooper type uh, rock stuff, and my mom was uh, my mom was mostly into like musicals and ABBA. So I got a lot of that growing up. Okay. It was a very uh, musically uncool upbringing for sure. My sister, my sister's like four years older and she was like, you got to listen to this wicked band. They're called the spin doctors. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's awesome. I always, uh, I I mean, I have a fond memory. I mean, the the spin doctors, I mean, was the, the uh, two, two princes that's yeah. the one hit and the other one and the other one is fuck what's the other one honestly i didn't even know there was a second one wait there and if you like to call me that's two princes right yeah that's two princes uh little miss can't be wrong is that a song little miss little miss little miss can't be wrong something like that it has to be a, there's no way you just made that <laughs> <laughs> um damn that's awesome uh and so we go back to Alice Cooper for a second. I always just knew the like 
you know, like, uh, uh, be my Frankenstein and like, um, uh, school's out for summer, like those hits. But in the last couple during the lockdown, I was like, you know what? I want to check out like early Alice Cooper. So I checked out like his first two records and they're so fucking good. Like, yeah, like not as sort of, I mean, it's still, you know, it's a little bit theatrical, but it's like totally not as camp as like the stuff that I think most people know him for. Oh, really? Okay. I got to yeah. check that. I can't say I'm like a, an Alice Cooper fan at this point in my yeah. life, but, right. but uh, that's cool. I, I mean, I, I think I was only exposed to like best of albums from, from my, my parents. So I don't, I don't know any deep cuts of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was pretty, t- I was like pretty surprised. I forget who was talking about it. it might've even been like Mark Maron or something like that, like talking about early Alice Cooper. And I was like, do I need to check this out? And <laughs> I feel like the last two years, I don't know if you've been down the same rabbit holes, but I feel like, especially during the last couple of years, it's really made me check out things that I never really found the time for. And also just like discover things that um, maybe I dismissed when I was a teenager that now I have an open mind to. Have you gone through any of that? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was, I, I've always been like a pretty big Elton John fan, but it was like straight up like best of Elton John, Yeah, you know, and, um, listening back to some of his older stuff, it's so wild. Like, uh, I forget what record it's on, but he's got a song called, I think I want to kill myself. And it is the most fucking punk rock song I've ever heard. It's like, it's, super like upbeat happy like piano like uh it's almost like sounds like the entertainer or something wow and and he's just and the melodies are like soaring and beautiful and 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 just super uplifting and it's the darkest lyrics i've ever heard and i was like this is what i've been trying to do my whole life and i didn't know this existed (laughs) wow i gotta hear that song i got i'm gonna look up that record too yeah elton john is a perfect example it's like i know and totally adore the obvious hits and stuff like that but i've never listened to like a full record especially an early record you know he's worth i think he's he's worth going down the rabbit hole for okay yeah that that's definitely on my list like growing up i fucking not only did i not not care but i would i would have told you like rolling stones fucking suck (laughs) and i swear to god i feel like i only listened to the rolling stones in like the last year you know what i'm saying like it's and it's it's the best i i totally get it now like i dismissed it they're like the beatles in the way that you know like there's so many songs that you don't realize were rolling stone songs yeah totally and it's also like i find those bands really hard to actually dig into because there's just too much much stuff yeah like I'm not even uh, that familiar with the Beatles. Like, obviously, I know the hits. I know the hits, but like, yeah. you know, I I don't think I'd ever really listen to like a full Beatles album front to back until I just finished that um, the Get Back series, and then I was like, okay, yeah, I, I should probably know something about what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta. Wa- I still haven't watched that. I gotta get. Did you watch all episodes of it? Yeah, I have mixed feelings. Um, uh-huh. I mean, the, I think the last like couple hours was so fascinating. I was like, so into it, but, um, it's like eight hours of, and like, I get it. This is the probably the most important band in the history of rock music. Yeah. So talented. And it's so clear how talented they are, but at the same time, it's just kind of like watching 
your own band practice because they <laughs> the same it's the same shit it's like the same petty like passive aggression it's the same like one person wants to work and the other three want to like goof off and like screw around and they can't come to decisions it's like it's just like everything about it was like this is exactly like a pup band practice except these guys are so much better at everything that's the only difference that's the only difference so much better and way more money otherwise it's the same band you know? yeah yeah that's awesome i like that um yeah it's uh i, I haven't got around to it i think because it's like you know i actually i, I like the beatles uh enough some of the guys in my band are like fucking fanatics um so i just haven't got around to it because of the because of the length which is normally something that doesn't bother me but just knowing it's an endeavor of like oh this is like eight hours of of yeah. this um so was uh were were your parents musical at all were they were they playing music at all no not at all um my parents are like uh they both have like science and math careers okay um and my sister is also she's my sister's a particle physicist it's like it's a weird family because i think my sister could have been she's she's kind of the type of person who's really good at everything. She could have definitely gone into the arts if she wanted to, but nobody in my family ever kind of did anything in the arts. So I think it's a bit of a learning experience for them trying to deal with me. (laughs) Weird black in the family. Uh, When did you start? uh, When did you start like playing an instrument? How old were you then? Um, I did play piano like, a little bit when I was, when I was younger, I took, I took some lessons. Um, probably started that when I was like nine on and off till I was 13 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first time I actually cared about playing music was, um, I think probably, I want to say like the summer of eighth grade, I went away to a summer camp and, uh, there was a guy there who was like, uh, he was, he's very cool, but he was one of the, you know, he's one of those cool kids who was like, he deserved to be cool. Cause he wasn't super nice to everybody. Uh-huh. And, uh, he brought a guitar an acoustic guitar and he played this song and I was like, Oh, that's a, that's a cool song. Like who wrote that song? And he was like, I did. And I was like, at that point, it sounds dumb, but at that point, like when I was in, you know, maybe eight, eighth grade or seventh or eighth grade, I was like, you can't, pe- normal people can't write songs. Like, that's not, that's not a thing that people just like, I didn't, it hadn't entered my mind that you could learn an instrument and then write a song on it. I, I, I'm not sure why, but it just seemed like, okay, I can learn to play guitar, but leave the songwriting to the artists, you know? Right. Um, and that kind of like, it blew my mind that he had, had written a song. So I came home from, from camp that summer and I, I got an acoustic guitar and I just like, I fell in love with it. Yeah. Was, was it, uh, how did you, like, what was the story with getting that acoustic? Was it like, uh, from like, what, what's the, I forget. What's the, what's the Canadian guitar center? What's it called? Oh, Long and McQuaid. It's the weirdest name of all time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's just two guys, two guys. (laughs) two guys last name so yeah it just uh, it it strikes you as like how do you how would you ever know that's a place where you buy instruments 
<laughs> I know. They have this wicked jingle, though, that you hear on the radio every now and then. It's like, long and quit where the music begins. It's like so groovy. There's like a saxophone in the background. It's like, uh, man, I just want to, I just want to shred right now. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, yeah, did you get, did you get it from there or was it like a, a, a from a, you know, thrift store hand me down or something? Uh, it was a gift from my parents. Definitely. They definitely bought it from Long and McQuaid. It was like the, um, it was, I think it was like the cheapest Yamaha acoustic guitar you could get, which is really strange. Cause, um, I just assumed that all Yamaha acoustic guitars are shit because of that. Um, and they're not like, I just got, I got one like a year ago and I'm like, this is the nicest acoustic guitar I've ever owned. Right. Yeah um did uh so did you take lessons or would you what was the story there so i took like i took maybe four or five lessons um <laughs> uh this guy uh his name was he called himself michael guitar teacher <laughs> <laughs> he uh he would always call me and uh and and like try so so he convinced me to take some lessons with him i was like self-taught like i i knew basic chords and stuff at that point and uh and he came over and he was like uh what do you want to learn how to play and i was like i want to learn how to play like some bob marley songs and he's like no 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 bob marley sucks you go to jamaica for like vacation for one week you listen to bob marley you think it's great then you come home and you realize that it's bad and i was like well i've never been to jamaica and i'm also like 14 years old and i'm pretty sure that like you're objectively wrong about this that's yeah, the most wrong, incorrect thing i've ever heard in my life and uh so I, so anyways the the four lessons that i did with him I learned uh, <laughs> the Hotel California solo. This fucking asshole. Like, that's yeah. what he taught you. That's, yeah. that's music to this guy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. That's incredible. He was like, he was like this is what you're going to want to learn. That, I was, that was going to be my first question. It's like, if he's dismissing Bob Marley in such an intense way, I want to know what his <laughs> shit was. <laughs> yeah. He was like, well, he was like, <laughs> he was like, if you want to learn Bob Marley, I can teach you the Eric Clapton version of I shot the sheriff. And I was like, I was like, Michael guitar teacher, like we're done here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm young. I'm young and impressionable, but I'm, I'm smart enough to know that this is trash. Yeah, but anyway, I'm, I'm certain that you are incorrect. <laughs> yeah. Poor guy though. He was, re- he was really nice aside from dismissing, uh, you know an entire genre with yeah. saying that it's only when you go to like i i don't i know one person who's been to jamaica i know one person you know what i'm saying it's like <laughs> oh it's, it's so insane and i like i was in love with bob marley for my like the entire time i was a teenager i was obsessed with bob marley how did how did that come your way like what who got you into who got you into that well uh, I, the first band I was ever in was a ska band. Okay. Um, and I kind of just got deep into that world. As soon as I started playing ska, I started like, um, you know, learning about the history of ska and reggae and all that stuff. And I got really into to ska music for like most of high school. Um, I kind of had this weird split personality 
where I played in a ska band that like was doing okay. Um, and people knew me as this like guy in the ska band and I loved that stuff. But the other side of me was like super into screamo. (laughs) So it was like a very kind of weird dichotomy Jekyll Hyde situation. Yeah. 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 That's, that's awesome. When did, uh, when did you start that band? What that, so you said that was your first band? Yeah. Okay. How old were you then? Um, I was like probably 14, ninth grade, 14. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'd been playing like acoustic guitar for maybe like six months or something. Um, and then, um, a friend of a friend was like, Oh, you play guitar, like come be in my ska band. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what that is. Uh, can I play an acoustic guitar? And he was like, absolutely not. <laughs> so, so I got like a, you know, hundred dollar Yamaha Pacifica guitar. And uh, it was like going to like ska boot camp. I went over to this guy's house. They already had their band and stuff. And learning to play ska is, if you're a beginner guitar player, is actually so hard because it's all on the offbeat. And oh, yeah. Totally. So, so the way he was explaining it to me was like, yeah, just do a normal strum pattern, but like the drummer is going to count to four, but, and everyone's going to start after four, but you just play your normal strum pattern, but start after five. Right. And then also it's, it's a, I mean, not to assume, but I, I have to feel it's a lot of upstrokes as opposed to downstrokes. Yeah. Well, it started off with me just doing downstrokes, but like, missing the beat purposely right. you know what I mean? yeah 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 i was like this is not this is not how this goes so do you, do you think yeah. that 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 uh, uh informed the way you ended up writing music later on at all like just that sort of you know that being built into your system early on i don't know um yeah. i definitely think like elements of writing songs for a ska band carried over into pup yeah. uh, uh we're so far removed from being a ska band but like at the beginning of of the band um i was used to like writing songs with horn arrangements and stuff like that yeah and yeah yeah. we just have songs that would have so many woes because i would just write like a horn arrangement but we would just do them as woes and it got so it got to a point of ridiculousness where we had a song where we was only woes and it was just pretty much making fun of ourselves. Um, so I started dialing it back at that point and was like, okay, I should, I should figure out how to write like not ska songs. Yeah. And what was the name of that ska band? It was called stop, drop and skank. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> really dumb, really dumb, but it was fun. It was like, it's really fun to be um, in a band like that. I think I learned a lot about, about music and and like there was like anywhere between like seven and nine people in that band at any given moment so it was and we were all teenagers it was like pretty dicey you know i learned a lot about like how to be with people in a band sure did you guys play many shows yeah yeah we um I mean, I guess we did as well as you could as a Southern Ontario ska band. <laughs> <still> <laughs> yeah, we did, we did all right. We did like some, 
a couple like really short runs with mustard plug and whoa that's that's legitimate yeah yeah we we had a lot of cool like i think we opened for like big d one time and yeah we we played a lot of shows like around ontario um and quebec and we played a couple shows in new york state but um we were never really allowed to go more than like five days at a time because we were all in high school. That's incredible though, that you got to have that, that, that early on. Did, uh, what was the first show you remember playing with them? The first show was, it was like two months after I joined the band. It was my first show ever. Uh, and it was maybe their like second or third show. Okay. And we played this place called the rocket in Toronto as an all ages club. Um, and it was a battle of the bands. It was like, I think we played three songs and I got to have a guitar solo in one. And I was just going nuts on those friggin' hotel, California. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like, it sounds like guitar came pretty naturally to you. If you started playing and then you were in that band and all of a sudden now you're, you're, you're getting a solo. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it came naturally at all. I think it was an absolute disaster. Like, (laughs) I think it was just like, I was in a ska band with my friends. They didn't care if it was good or not. They were just yeah. like, yeah, we're going to. And and also like, we, it was a battle of the bands. Like you don't have to like be good to get to do it. You just sign up. Right. Did so, you win? We won. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. So yeah. it, it's not as bad as you thought. <laughs> unless, unless the other bands were fucking. Just- oh, I'm, I'm sure they were putrid, man. I, like, <laughs> like, I don't know. I think it was probably just a bunch of kids in our exact circumstance, like ninth grade kids who had just picked up an, an instrument for the first time and, and were figuring things out. Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, and did that band record? Yeah, we made two, um, we made two short records uh, and we did some, we did some like recording before those, which we thought was going to be like a record. It's a, but uh we were just so bad and the recordings were so bad like even we knew at that stage like this can't see the light of day but we did do two two like uh i think both of them were like eight songs or something um and yeah we did our whole like you know diy press a thousand copies and go on vinyl no 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 sorry oh cds yeah yeah Yeah, yeah. and like go book as many shows and weird tiny towns as we could and just do our best to move through a thousand copies of each. And, you know, yeah, it was, it was really fun. Um, what was that first recording experience like for you? Honestly, I, I have trouble, I have trouble rem- like piecing it all together. Um, the first one we ever did was just like a friend who came to our basement our our basement the guy the 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 guy who was like the main the lead singer in the band um practiced in his basement and um uh our friend came and recorded it and it was like it was pretty brutal um but the first time we were ever in a studio uh was studio time that we won from the battle of the bands um, yeah and uh we were actually i feel like a lot of my friends have told me stories where they got their first studio time. They had like, you know, a 12 hour day or something. And they try to go and do a 15 song record or something. Oh and 
Yeah, I know. We were, but we were literally the opposite. We were like, we have a 12 hour day. Let's be smart about this. Like we can do like two, three songs. Um, so we did that and they actually sounded like pretty, pretty decent for what they were. So do you remember uh, if you recorded them live or was it track by track? Yeah, it was, it was all live. Okay. Yeah. Um, we might've, we might've overdubbed vocals. I can't remember. Um, but then, yeah, we were like, this turned out well enough that like, maybe we should do this a few more times. So we did it a few more times and ended up with eight songs and. Were you singing in this band at all? I was, but, uh, I was not the lead singer. I like, uh, I was singing a lot of backups and then kind of the way the band worked was like every five songs, um, Dan, who was the the lead singer and kind of, he was the leader of the band. Um, every five songs he wrote, I would like write one song and then I would sing that song. And, um, Yeah. It sounds it sounds very propaganda in that sort of way with like John K. Samson early on, where it's like m- most songs were not John K., but he apparently he or he not apparently he he appeared uh, a couple times on a record early on, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, it was it was in that world, and and to be honest, I was like much more comfortable um, not having that, not being in the center of the stage, you know, sure. being off to the side with like 50 other horn players or whatever. Yo, I mean, I, I was thinking about that when you were telling me just, just the fact that the first band was a ska band with like nine members or whatever is because what's great about that is if you're a timid, nervous person, you can definitely hide within eight other people. You know, you just sort of yeah. get back and be like, okay, I'm not the total center of attention here. Yeah, for sure. And, and I've always kind of been, I've always been a little bit of an introvert, but I've also always like really wanted to when things aren't going well i try to disappear and that's so hard to do in pup now but (laughs) i i still like there are still some shows where i've managed it um they're just like turn off the amp and pretend like you're having trouble and you can't (laughs) and it's not working just turn it off and get through the rest of the show you know steve is like a really good guitar player so he just looks over sees i'm not actually playing and he's like all right i guess i'm you've literally done that oh yeah yeah one time um one time um really early on in pop uh we we covered a fucked up song and um and I guess Damien from Fucked Up heard it and um, asked us to to do a show with them. So we opened for them. And then um, right before they played, he came up to us and was like, the song that you uh, you guys are covering, it was off uh, David Comes to Life. He's like, I want you guys to walk out on stage uh, before Fucked Up plays. Like after the house lights go down, walk up out there pick up all of our instruments, play that song and then all come out and like sing the last chorus. And then you guys hand off the instruments and we'll continue with our set. And this was like 10 minutes beforehand. And we were like, Oh my God, like, God, like what? Like, you know, at this point we were just playing super small, mostly like basement shows. And we were, and then we were at this club, playing to there's 700 people waiting to see fucked up. Um, and I was just too nervous. So I just, I left the amp on standby 
And I just, I just like looked at Steve and I was like, it's on you, buddy. Like, I'm not doing this. (laughs) Wow. How did it go? For the other Uh, guys, I guess. (laughs) I mean, they, they had a good time. I I had a good time. I had a good time too, but like, I think, I, I think I missed a lot of, uh, fun positive experiences at the beginning of the band just because i was like nervous and and shy and weird did you did you catch if when you handed the instrument off if that person realized it was on standby oh yeah yeah oh yeah he was like nice one Today's episode is brought to you by Discovered Magazine. Discovered is an international print counterculture magazine encompassing the best of music, art, skateboarding, and anything with a punk ethos. Listeners get 10% off a yearly subscription using the code FIRSTEVER, spelled out, when you visit store.dscvrd.co. Discovered is definitely the coolest magazine around. They cover so many bands that uh, other publications just don't. And uh, I love them for it. Support Discovered. You won't regret it. Um, so when uh, so the Scott did the Scott band break up or did you did you quit? What what was the what was the what was that situation? Yeah, there was like as as it goes with high school bands, there was a bunch of drama. But um, the drummer in the band, um, he was kind of the guy that everybody loved. Like we were all super good friends he was just the nicest guy in the world and um he decided he one day he was like you know i'm gonna i'm gonna move to new zealand just out of the blue he's like i'm i don't there's not much going on for me here like job wise or whatever i'm just gonna move to new zealand and i think at that point insane place to decide like (laughs) no one no one says i'm just gonna move to new zealand that's (laughs) i don't know he was a weird dude he was very adventurous sounds like it yeah he he was he was fun um and i think at the that point we were all probably like 21 22 um and i was like you know the the people in the band were pretty much for that, for the last two or three years, like the oldest people at these ska shows. Right. And it was sure. just like, this seems like a natural time to, to leave this behind and move on to something else. Fair, fair. Um, and then how soon after did pop start? So when pop started, it was originally called Topanga, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it didn't, it didn't start for a while afterwards um, because I didn't really think of myself as somebody who could be a band leader or, or be like a, a main songwriter. Like uh, I try to only have positive memories from my time in the ska band, but there was one negative thing that really stuck with me that kind of stopped me from starting a new band. And it was on the, after our last show, I was like, man, I am like so, so sad that, that this chapter is done and somebody else in the band was like, it might be done for you, but like, I'm a musician, so I'm going to keep going. And mm-hmm. I was like, well, okay, like I get the sentiment, but maybe just, you didn't have to say it like that. Right. Uh, so I kind of gave up on that and, um, you know, went to school. Um, I started like managing a couple bands and putting on shows and, and just like, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be in music. I'm not going to be a, a musician. I'm going to just, you know, be part of the scene and help however I can. And, um, and then 
uh, Nestor and I, Nestor plays bass in, in pop. Um, we went to university together, um, and we were in a, an audio program, which is crazy because I'm, I don't even know what a compressor does after four years. And he's like a brilliant, uh, audio engineer. Yeah. Um, but we had a, a project to like record something and I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to write a song and, and record it. Um, so I wrote a song and then I, uh, recruited Nestor to play bass and Nestor had these two friends that he's been friends with his whole life. who he's played in a hundred bands with. And he's like, yeah, they'll, they'll just come in and, and they can play on it. Um, so we recorded one song and it went great. And I got along with, with everybody. And it was kind of like, I was walking into like a fully formed band already. It was really weird. It was like a, a, a band that was fully formed, but just didn't have somebody writing songs. Okay. Um, and so we recorded that one song and we were all like kind of stoked on it. And like, maybe we should be, maybe we should be a band. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, I have to ask, does the band name come from Topanga from Boy Meets World? Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. So I, I got to tell you this story. My father, uh, my father worked uh, on Boy Meets World. Like he was, he, his company was like part of the post-production team on it. Right. And uh, when I was, I mean, when the show was still airing, I was, you know, probably maybe like two or three years younger than the main cast, you know? So like, I'm a huge fan. So we get to go to the, to the rap party at the end of a season. And it was like on this, like it took place in the, in the place where they filmed it. So like, I got to see the set and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I had a situation, well, um, the the main glaring point of the story is, I mean, every kid, every young kid had a crush on Topanga, like every young kid did, you know? Um, and so I see her there and I'm like, so starstruck and like, Oh my God. And, um, and they had a little dance floor and she asked me to dance. Whoa. She went after you. And I panicked and said, no. And it 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 has haunted me <laughs> my entire like like that was my first probably interaction that I ever had with a with a girl who seemed I mean she was just definitely she wasn't interested in me I'm young you know she was probably I don't know thirteen or something and I was probably ten you know what I'm saying like there's no way she was interested in me but she was just being very sweet and was like hey you want to dance and I was like no. <laughs> Well, that's nice. I hope that, like, I hope that even though it haunts you, and as it should, um, <laughs> hopefully, it like it was like you know a pretty big confidence booster for ten-year-old Jeremy to be like, oh, she chose me. Oh, I I only look back on that as as like really just hating myself. But uh, there was there was one really uh, there was one very sweet uh, or two sweet moments too, where I was in line for for getting food. And Ben Savage, I looked a lot like Ben Savage as a kid. I had very curly, I had very curly brown hair. And Ben Savage turned around and looked at me. He goes, "Hey, haven't I met you? Or haven't I seen you before? Like every morning when I look in the mirror, <laughs> like that." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the the little girl on the show, um, the the young sister, I think her name was Morgan on the show. At one point, I had my back turned and I was like talking to my dad or something, probably. And she started tugging on my shirt and I turned around and she was saying, Ben, Ben, Ben. And I turned and she literally thought I was Ben Savage in that, in that moment. I was like, so taken. I also just startled that it was like this person from the show, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, 
that also seems like really almost like intimidating. It's like these older, cool actor kids are like kind of, I mean, yeah, you they're not like lighting, lighting you up or anything, but they're just like making jokes and you're yeah. just like, I don't know, I'm 10. I don't know how to yeah, process I'm, this humor. Totally. And uh, you bet your ass that writer Strong, the kid who played Sean on the show, you bet your ass that him and his friends were like off in the corner being teenagers, like definitely too cool. I was so, I was like, he's too cool for school, man. I, I can't, there's no way I can talk to that guy. So I stayed away <laughs> from him. But uh, yeah, that's, I, I, I definitely haven't shared that on the show. I don't, I don't know that I've really shared that in the last ton of years but that's one of, <laughs> that's one of those things that when i saw that the band was called to i was like i got to tell you that story because it's it's the it's one of the wildest childhood stories ever and it's like a very burbank story which is where i'm from which is like the you know where they film a lot of stuff so uh yeah what does was, what what is your what does your dad do or what did he he's do? in yeah he's in post-production which is you know like the 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 death which kind of surprises me that he went to the rap party because it's like I'm assuming just the company got invited or something like that. Like my dad definitely wasn't like on set or anything like that. It was just like probably doing some sort of like sound editing or something like that. Um, we got to go to that rap party. And then we went to a, do you remember the show, the nanny? Which no, it was Fran Drescher. Uh, there was a rap party for that. And that was like, I remember it being like in a, probably the parking lot of, of whatever studio it was. But I remember they had that, those gigantic slides that you sit on a rug and you like go down the slide, you know, kind of a thing. And okay. I just spent all night doing that and probably eating junk food and having a bad stomach ache. But like, that yeah. sounds like a great time. Oh, it was the best. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely, I was like, I am not a fan of the show, but I am a fan of slides. So here we are. <laughs> that sounds like a much more positive experience than your uh, boy meets world. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I saw that Topanga put out a seven inch. Um, and then uh, like, uh, it, if, if Discogs is steering me correctly, that you guys ended up like changing your band name while you still had those seven inches and maybe like putting a new cover on it that said pup or something. Does that sound correct? Yeah. The cover that we had for the Topanga seven inches was like this screen printed thing that we just folded. It was like, we, right. we just made them ourselves. Uh, and so we just bent the covers the opposite way and wrote pup on it's the way to do it what's what's the story with uh royal mountain records like i i was i looked through it a little bit i didn't recognize much it was a very like toronto-based label yeah yeah it's a it's a very canadian label um so there was a band that uh we were friends with they don't exist anymore but they were called Colorado. um they were they were fairly popular in canada i don't think they really did much outside of outside of Canada, but they were, you know, they're on Canadian radio all the time, even still. And wow. And they had a pretty good, um, pretty, pretty serious following. Um, and, uh, the lead singer in that band, his name is Menno. He decided that he wanted to start a label. Um, and he, we were kind of running in the same circles. He had been out to see a few Topanga shows and was like kind of pretty into what we were doing. And like, had invited us to open for Colorado a few times and um and he decided he wanted to start a label and so he asked if Pup would be the first band that that he could put out. Um, oh wow. Yeah. So we were the uh aside from his own band. So we were right. the first we were the first band that he properly signed. Um and 
at the time I was a little bit wary about being the first band on a new label, like, you know, as, as you would naturally be, but in Canada, the music industry is a bit strange here. Um, more so I think than in my experience than, than in the States, it's very, uh, there's a lot of gate, there's a lot more gatekeeping. Uh, and essentially there was only one label in Canada that would ever have considered putting out something like the first pop record. And that that's Dynalone. Uh, so they're like the Lexus on fire and uh, a lot of great bands on that label. Um, uh, and we, we really wanted to get signed to Dynalone and, um, uh, the guy who runs Don Alone was really nice and supportive, but he was like, yeah, I'm just, sorry, man. It's just a pass. But like, I, you know, I have faith that you guys will do good stuff in the future. He was really cool about it. Uh, and after that, we didn't really have any other options. Um, and my friend wanted to start a record label. So it was like, well, this is as good as, as it's going to get um, for us. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we signed with them and, uh Menno Menno's always been very good to our band. He's always, you know, um the first time we ever went on tour, we bought a piece of garbage van from a junkyard. Um as you're supposed to. As you're supposed to. <laughs> and it broke down uh on the way home from the very first show of a of a four-week tour. Um and we would have been screwed. Like we had just quit our jobs and like spent all of our money as you do at the beginning of a band. To, this all this all uh, tracks. Yeah, yeah. So we were like, oh, that's it. Band's over. <laughs> like we can't go on this tour, or whatever. And you know, Menno was uh he lent us the Colorado, his his band's van. They weren't on tour at the time and he just let us use it. And that's he's awesome. always been real nice and DIY in that way. So um we put out the record and um and that would have been the self-titled record. Self-titled, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and, then, and, from, and from what I saw, it looked like that got picked up by Side One Dummy like within a few months, right? Yeah, totally. So originally, we were like really focused on not being a Canadian band. We were like, we were like, we don't, we can't, uh, we're not going to sign a worldwide deal with a Canadian label. We're just so many Canadian bands fall into this Canadian trap, um, and we didn't want to do that. And, but it's so hard. It's so hard to break out of Canada. If you're a Canadian band, it's so hard to get shows in America. Um, and especially at that time, it was really hard to get shows in America. Like no, nobody wanted to deal with a band who had to cross the border and, you know, visas cost a couple grand to get across to play a show. And it's like, as, as you know, probably most of the people listening to this podcast know, like, when you're at that level, you're like praying that you're going to make a hundred bucks at, at a gig and just spending 2000 bucks to get visas is just not a realistic situation. Yeah. So we were really shooting, like we were really working it hard. Like I was on emails every day, just like pounding the pavement kind of thing and nothing was coming of it. So we decided to just put it out on Royal Mountain in Canada and just see what happened. And, um, yeah, I don't I don't know how Side One Dummy heard about it, but they they jumped on it pretty quickly. I think it was because it was like the number it just it it was something on like Apple Music Canadian Rock. It was like the week it came out it was like pretty high up on that chart. And um I guess somebody was paying attention to that and and they jumped on it pretty quick and that kind of like 
opened a ton of doors for us. Oh, I mean, I remember when that self-titled record first hit. I mean, like the album cover is is pretty like noticeable. You know, it's like <laughs> it, it stands out because you. I feel like if you look at that album cover, you don't know what genre of music it is. You're like, this could be a this could be a hip hop record. This could yeah. be all sorts of stuff. So I remember seeing that, and it was kind of like everywhere all at once. Um, also, at the time, like having friends that were on Side One Dummy, I I think. I think title fight was already on side one dummy at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. And fake, I've known the fake problems guys since they were like children. Um, yeah. so like, you know, I, I was tapped into that label and, um, yeah, I just remember when that came out, it was kind of like everywhere all at once. It's interesting what you're saying about breaking out of Canada. Cause I've always found that interesting myself. Like, um, there's so many bands that are so massive in Canada that are also maybe so massive in like the UK or something like that. But then they're a band that when they come to the U.S., they're like first of four on tours, yeah. you know, yeah. Um, like Billy Talent is a Canadian band, right? Yeah. And they're like uh, hockey. Huge. Arenas. Yeah. yeah. Huge. Like, like we were supposed to go out with them this month. It, it, it got canceled. Unfortunately. I saw that. But uh, but it was like 15,000 cap hockey arenas. It's crazy. Uh, but then, yeah, it. I also think, though, a big part of it, for at least tell me if I'm wrong, but like I think a big part of it, um, which helps so much, is that like Canadian radio is like very supportive of, of the bands. Like you actually get played on the radio, which is like something that doesn't happen here for any modern band. So that's <laughs> very, Imagine Dragons. Yeah. 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 Seriously. No, that's it's it's golden handcuffs, though. That's what we've always been wary of and, and steered away from because we have a lot of friends who, who play in great bands who do really well in Canada and, and they can't drop 10 people in New York city, but they can draw 2000 in Toronto. Um, and it, it is this like kind of golden handcuffs where Canadian radio rock is very specific. It's like a very specific sound that is not, which is not to generalize, but usually it's not very good. Um, and, there is a bit of a formula for getting on Canadian radio. And if you're like a good band and you link up with the right Canadian radio producer, you, you got a really good shot of, of getting on Canadian radio. And I think a lot of bands start out like how we started out being like, yeah, we don't care about that. We want to go and play in America and we want to, we want to, you know, grind it out and do it that way. But then it's, it's so discouraging. It's so hard to get shows in America. It's so hard to get a visa to go to the States that eventually you start thinking like, all right, well, if that's not going to happen, how can I keep this project going and, and make a living or pay some bills doing it? And the way that you do that is you make a Canadian radio rock record and it gets on Canadian radio. And then you can go play the, the 10 places that matter in Canada once every year or two and sell 2000 tickets and it's awesome, but you play 10 shows a year max, you know? Right. And the Canadian government also like helps fund or not fund, but like also you can get grants from the, from the Canadian government if you're a musician, correct? Yeah. There's a grant program, which is, which is heard become has gotten, has gotten a lot harder to get. Yeah. I, I'm, I don't know. Um, we haven't, we haven't done much grant stuff in the past. I mean, it's not, the grants aren't really for uh, bands like us. It's, it's, and also a lot of labels get grants, right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. 
which is another, like, it's a, it's so amazing that that's a thing. And I'm so appreciative. Like, you know, definitely our first record was fun- funded mostly by the government, which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, but that's another kind of golden handcuffs situation where it just kind of fosters it. it it's, there's a sense of, um, I, I'm not really sure what the word is, but it's almost like a Canadian isolationist mentality where it's like, well, Canada's got all these great bands and, and no one else appreciates us. So fuck everyone else. And we're going to do our own thing in Canada. And, uh, and then it's just kind of heartbreaking for me when I see some, some of my friends bands who are just incredible bands and, they just adopt the wrong mentality and, and they can't get out, get out of here. Sure. Um, so I wanted to ask about, uh, again, going through like your, uh, a lot of the discography and like looking at the credits and things like that. From what I can tell, it seems like you've worked with the same uh, producer, a guy named David Schiffman for like everything you've recorded. Right. Yeah. The, the record we have coming out, um, in uh in april April is the first record we've ever done not with dave i was curious if he was a part of it because i couldn't find the credits for this record so um first off how how did you find this david schiffman and and what's the story i looked at his credits and it seems like he's done everything (laughs) it's all over the place like i was like stunned at the amount of records that that guy's worked on well so so dave got his start as um rick rubin's engineer so he engineered like all the beastie boys and chili peppers records and like johnny cash Cash. and yeah he i think he did i think i might be getting this i don't don't think i am i think he engineered and or mixed uh jagged little pill like jesus (laughs) like uh he's incredible but um he was he he's really like made a name for himself as an engineer and a a mixing guy. Um, He had produced a couple of records that we were really into, but, um, but he was mostly known for those other roles. So uh, we knew him as a producer from uh, the Bronx too. Okay. Um, God, that record sounds so good too. Oh yeah. That was like when, when we were first starting as a band, that was like, it was that and the monitor on rotation in the van and that was it <laughs> yeah um and he also produced a band called priestess which are a, a canadian band who are like a kind of a stoner metal band that we all love too um and we so we made we had some demos and we sent them to him with no expectations we're like is, is we're he just, in canada no he's an la guy okay i was wondering i was like with all those records i was wondering if he was if he just flew to you know flew around if he was from canadian okay go ahead sorry yeah no no he's in he's in la so we sent him we sent him the tracks and expected no response because we were not i think we were still topanga at the time like we we had nothing going for us um uh and he hit us back like a few days later and he was like i'm down like these sound these are wicked like i'm excited to do this record like let's make this happen. And we were just kind of like floored. Um, and he gave us like a real deep discount. It was like, a, it, it was very clear from the outset that we were his passion project between engineering massive records, you know? I love that. Yeah. So we got, we got super lucky that he was just into it and, and willing to like kind of invest 
in the band and, um, and he believed in us and, um, he became, he is like, he's one of my best friends now. He's like, he is part of the pop family, you know, um, just such a great guy, a great producer who has produced a lot more in the, in, in the recent years, but, um, should be producing huge records. But I think, I think he maybe got pigeonholed a little bit into the engineer mix role. Mm. Um, but every time he produces something, he crushes it and he just really cares and, and is such a, such a good guy. Yeah. I mean, your records from this, what's great is like your records from the very start, you know, have sounded great, you know, and, and I see why, you know, if this guy's especially behind the, behind the engineering and mixing and everything since like day one, that's, or, or, you know, I'm saying day one with your records. It's incredible. That's, that's super, super cool. So who'd you do the new one with? Uh, we did it with Peter Cadis. He did uh, like the national records and Interpol and um, Kurt Jesus. Yeah, yeah. That wow, does a it was a a cool and weird experience. Is he in New York? Um, he's in Connecticut. Okay, so did, where did you record it? Do you record it in Canada or where did you record it? We we recorded it in Connecticut. And in Connecticut, yeah. Was, yeah. He has like this big huge kind of American horror story mansion in Bridgeport. (laughs) Um, And, and so we just, we locked ourselves up there for five weeks and we didn't leave except to get groceries. And we worked on, on the record. Like every, every moment we were awake, we worked on the record. It was a weird, different experience for us. It's so different from, from the making of the last three records. Right. Did you embrace that though? Or was it like an exciting challenge? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was, it's exactly what we wanted. Um, there wasn't a huge, a, a big reason to not do it the way that we've done the other three, because we've all, we've, we're very proud of all three of those records. And, um, uh, and like I said, like Dave is still part of pup. Like he is part of the fabric of this band. Um, and the reason that we kind of deviated from that was like, we had done three that sonically had a sort of like an overarching, I don't know, sonic theme, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but it seemed like we'd kind of reached a conclusion of, of that particular um, sound. So we wanted to figure out like, how do we still do pup in a very pup way, but like have it not just sound like morbid stuff, part two or like self-titled part four, however you want to look at it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the way for us, the easiest way that we thought of doing that was to just record it in a completely different studio in a completely different way. Um, You know, the other records mostly had been like, we go to the studio Monday to Saturday, 10 AM to 8 PM. And we go home and we treat it kind of like a job. And this one was like a, just like locking ourselves away and it's like we'll we'll emerge when we finish you know right. oh that's awesome so it was an overall positive experience yeah yeah oh yeah i uh yeah i i think it's really amazing and and the four of us kind of got along better than than we ever have uh making records and it has nothing to do with anything except for the fact that we're like more mature people and we actually like give a shit about each other (laughs) you know so the record comes out april 1st right yeah oh that's awesome uh 
how close was side one dummy ending with a record being released? Cause that would have been for the dream is over, right? Like that's when they, that was the last record you did with side one. Yeah, we were, we were quite fortunate because we had a two record deal with them. Uh, so we did the self title, then we did dream is over and everything went swimmingly. Yeah. Um, and then we were kind of like coming to that point where it was like, we were going to have to have that conversation about, about do we want to stay on this like resign or go yeah. elsewhere yeah yeah and and it, i think that was poised to be a very difficult decision for us because they had been so good to us in the past and and they had worked so hard and and we valued that relationship so much but at the same time the the resources were just we'd kind of i feel like we had reached sort of a glass ceiling on that label sure um and so it was going to be a really tough decision uh, and we didn't have to make it. They kind of made it for us. So <laughs> right. we, we were pretty lucky in that, in that respect. Yeah. I, you know, I can only speak from personal experience, but like I, I like, and we've continued to sort of move labels every two records ish. You know what I'm saying? Like we're, we've always kind of done that. Um, and I like that you guys, even though you've described David as like a member of the band, like it's always cool to have a new challenge and like have someone outside of the box because like um, we only, we did two records uh, with this gentleman, Brad Wood. um, But like when it came to doing this last record for us, you know, we were sort of looking at it like, well, Brad feels like a member of the band at this point, you know, like we we have a great relationship with Brad and, and we know if we went in with Brad, like he's going to champion what we're doing and be there for us. But like, you know, let's maybe go to somebody who's going to uh, be completely outside of the box and throw shit at us that we would never have expected, yeah. <laughs> you know? And like, I just think it's, I think it's smart if fans are in the position to, to try new things. Like it's always, it's always good. You know, it, it keeps the, it keeps everything fresh. Yeah. I mean, complacency is a real thing, you know? Um, yeah. And I think if you're, if you want to keep moving forward, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's okay to be like, this is what this project is. And we're just going to do that. But if, if you're in the kind of project that you wanted to continually push forward, push boundaries, evolve, like you, it's like, it takes everything to fight against that complacency because it's so easy to fall into this comfortable routine where you know you're going to get something that you feel good about um, out of the process. But at the same time, you know, I don't think, I think if we had made another record in the same way, I wouldn't have felt good about it. I would have, even if I thought the songs were good and it sounded great and, and people liked it, I would still, I would still feel like I let myself down because it's almost like uh, I would have given up trying to, trying to push, you know? Sure. And with this, what's the general, what's the person's name who you did this new record with? Uh, Peter Cadis. Did Peter understand the band? Like, did, like, do you feel like there was a, an early connection? Because I mean, me just referencing someone who did the national and and Interpol, you know, like, I'm just curious, I'm just curious if he was, if he was, uh, if he came onto the project from like demos or if it was just like, like how did that relationship start? Yeah. So he heard, he heard the demos, um, and agreed to do it. Um, 
Peter's a wonderful guy. I really like him. I have so much respect for the work he's done. He's also a very hard guy to read. Ah, <laughs> ah. So he agreed to do the project and we were all really excited about that. He was our first choice. Yeah. Um, but there was also a side conversation like, does he like this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like this guy's like busy, like smashing other records out of the park, like winning Grammys and shit. Like, does he care about pup? Like, oh, right. pup. It, you know, it's just a very different vibe than Dave, who who is very like hard on his sleeve, like very obviously into what's happening from the yeah. get go. And with Peter, it was a bit more of a, of a, of a, a slog to get there but yeah. we got there with him and and it we did realize after a while that he he was he's really invested and he was really into it he just shows it in a different way and we had just gotten so used to working with dave for so long that it took a minute to accept it but no yeah he was he was great and um and you know the other great thing about there's so many great things about working with him but but one of the things that stuck with me was like you know, like I said, we recorded in his house, like in this house that he owned and he had all this crazy gear lying around everywhere. And he was like, I'm going to be here, whatever, 10 to eight, Monday to Friday, but you guys like go nuts at any hour you want, any day, whatever. And Nestor who plays bass and pop is like a pretty incredible recording engineer. So uh, there were just so many toys for us to play with. I like, I remember like sitting down at the piano that like my favorite national records were recorded on and like playing away at it. And I, I barely play piano. I suck at piano and I was like, I shouldn't be touching this thing, but like, <laughs> what set up mics. <laughs> yeah. What, what national records did you do? Um, did you boxer high violet trouble find me any of those? I think he did High Violet and Trouble Will Find Me, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, wow, man. Yeah. I, and he I, did the first two Interpol records, which were like pretty huge records. Monumental, yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, the Bright Lights record and Antics are yeah, so, yeah, oh, so good. Those were like big uh, mind opening experiences for me when I heard them when I was like 15 or something. You know, it's incredible. It's incredible. Uh, well, shit, man, let me hit you with the last question, which is when was the first time you felt like you were doing the thing that you had been working so hard towards? Um, I think I feel it so often that uh, because it's so easy for me to forget um, that I'm doing it, um, that anytime anything good happens, I'm like, oh, shit, like <laughs> I'm playing in this band and it's working like that's that how did I get here? But, uh, if I had to like pinpoint the very first time it was, um, right after, uh, we sent those demos to Dave Schiffman and he agreed to make the record. Uh, the four of us all got together the next day and we're like, okay, well we have to like go into the studio, like ready to go because like, we can't be wasting this, this man's time. Uh, and we all agreed that the next day we were all going to walk into our jobs and quit. And we all quit our jobs on the same day. And, um, and we went out to a tiki bar <laughs> huh? and we got, we got out of our mind and called the 
called Dave Schiffman and we're like, we all just quit our jobs. So I hope you're not dicking us around. And he was like, I'm so proud of you guys. I'm so excited. Like we're going to, we're going to make a great record. And I just remember feeling like at that moment, like, is this, is this real life? <laughs> you know? Right. Oh, I love that. That's so cool. I love that you all actually did quit your jobs on the same day. I feel like that's dangerous. Like there's always going to be the one guy who's, who gets cold feet. He was like, no. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess Steve was a freelancer. So maybe, but he did tell a bunch of his guitar students that he was out. Yeah. So. Right, right, right. Uh, well, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm so stoked for you and I'm excited for your new record. And, uh, you know, we, I can't, I mean, I know we played together at that festival in, uh, where was that? Was that in Vancouver? Yeah. Something like that. I yeah, guess. I think so. And that was probably at this point, seven, eight years ago or something yeah, like that, which is, which is crazy. Um, but I remember thinking you, you, your band was great and you were also so fun to be around. You know, it's a, it's cool when you meet a band and you just kind of instantly, you know, get along with them and you're like, uh, you know, I mean, I'm going to, I'm writing for that band going forward. So, you know, we haven't been around each other too much in these last eight years. It's really been, you know, I, I can't even think of how many times it's even happened, but like, you know, from the sidelines, I've, I've been really excited watching your band grow and do all, do all this cool stuff. So I appreciate what you do and for coming on the show and everything. Oh, thanks man. And honestly, likewise, I'm like, it is, it is weird that this is the longest we've ever gotten the chance to talk, but like, totally. I'm a huge fan of, uh, of your band and of you and of your podcast and uh, that whole like kind of uh, podcast podcast listener relationships a little weird because I feel like I know you pretty well even though you know like I just listened to your voice for so many hours um, and uh, yeah I really appreciate you having me on hell yeah thank you so much that means the world all right take care buddy cheers And that's our show. Thank you so much to Stefan for coming on and thank you for listening. Don't forget there's a bonus episode. Hit up patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon to hear that now and support the show. And uh, hope you have a good rest of your week. Take care. Bye-bye.